Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Or open up your device there. You heard Pastor Mike say about a month ago that whenever Pastor Daniel's not preaching, our primary teaching and preaching pastor, that you will hear the rest of us go through various one another's throughout Scripture. There's like 144 one another's, and there's quite a bit of overlap. And there are some one another's that are so darn close to another one another that you can't really preach one one another without talking about the other one another. And if I've not lost you yet, awesome, you're in for a nice ride. If I have lost you, I apologize. Romans 12.10. Did anyone know that today was Pentecost Sunday? One person, awesome. You get a gold star for the day. Today is Pentecost Sunday. That's 50 days after Easter. And what I think is so fitting about that is some of the very same people who got saved at Pentecost likely founded the church at Rome, the church that Paul was writing to here in Romans chapter 12. You know, if, if Paul at, at his time in life had a bucket list, visiting the church at Rome would have been near the top. But you know, without ever having met them, he loved them like family. Without ever laying eyes in them or greeting them with a holy kiss, he loved them like family. And as he continued to minister elsewhere, Paul writes this letter to a church that is marked, like Pastor Mike has already told you a month ago, marked by ethnic diversity. Jews and Gentiles, financial diversity, poor and wealthy. And you also have different levels of uh, maturity of the faith. You've got some who are very weak in conscience and some who, on the other hand, are very strong in their faith. And unlike his other letters, Paul is not writing to Rome to put them on blast for the rampant wickedness that they've allowed. No, instead, he's writing to the church at Rome. Well, one, he needs missionary support so we can go to Spain. But, but also, he wants to help them understand how to better obey the gospel and show genuine love to Christ and one another and how that plays out in everyday life. And what a letter it was and is. The same letter that helped Christians millennia ago is helping us today. So go ahead and take a look at Romans 12.10. The ESV says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The HCSB says, show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. And the NASB 95 says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. We look at a couple different translations so that we can all see no matter how you slice it. The Apostle Paul is very clear. Our love should be genuine to one another, and it's a love that's marked by family affections, brotherly affections, and that requires devotion, like you would find inside your home. And we're to honor one another. Over the past month or so, you've probably heard the headlines, or maybe you've actually been impacted, or somebody you're close to has been impacted. There's been a massive and terrifying baby formula shortage. You've all heard about that, right? There are good parents, good godly parents, who for a moment would admit they freaked out a little bit because they're looking at this can of formula and they're remembering, I know God filled the widow's oil jar, but what's he going to do about the baby formula? My wife knows a lady who visited 17 stores in this area and couldn't find what she needed for her baby. There's a family in Metro Detroit that visited 28 stores, 28, nearly 30 stores, 
trying to find formula that they needed for their baby. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be as a parent to not know what happens when the jar goes dry? But not all hope was lost because God is always at work in the mess. This time, he used two ordinary women who did something remarkable. Two doulas in southwest Michigan, I think they're in the metro Detroit area, they saw that the need was great and that the end was not near in sight. So they did what they knew how to do. They hopped on Facebook. They created a group and they put out a 411. Hey, all parents, especially moms, check your drawers, check your closet, check the spare diaper bag, check underneath the minivan seats, look to see where you may have sample packs that you didn't use. If you shop at Costco or Sam's Club, maybe you've got four and you only really need one to get you through the next month until we let us know what you have extra and please, I'll come pick it up and we'll deliver it to someone else in need. And so that's what they did. They started like the most in-demand business in the state with this baby formula sharing network. They had people donating their extra samples or whatever they might have had that was unused from their child who's now been weaned and maybe they're on baby food now. But the need was so great and so dire that we even had breastfeeding moms pumping extra so that they could donate it. And if you know anything about that, I'm not even sure that's legal. But we say, who cares about the law? My baby needs to eat. And so these ladies, when gas is over $4 a gallon, they're driving all over southwest Detroit. This is not their day job. Driving all over southwest Detroit, gas is over $4 a gallon, delivering life and nourishment to complete strangers. The need is so great right now that you have people saying, hey, I don't even have a baby, but I heard about this group. What do you need? What what are you looking for? Because maybe on my side of town, maybe I can find it for you. And then I'll put it on my porch and these two doulas are going to come pick it up and they'll deliver it to you so that you can feed your child. This is humanity at its best. You know, the world does know how to show love, but let it never be said that the world knows how to love each other better than we know how to love one another as Christians. You know, these ladies sacrifice their time and their money and wear and tear on their car for love. Love for people they had never met. People who really couldn't repay them because how do you put a price tag on keeping your kid alive? You can't. Listen, I don't know the testimony of these two ladies, but I know yours. And if you're in this room, there's a good chance you profess that God is King of kings and Lord of lords. And like any good king, he has a royal decree for his loyal subjects. And that's what we are trying to be today. So what we see here in Romans 12.10 very clearly is that God requires his children to genuinely love one another with brotherly love. Like I said, the world does know how to show love, but Christians ought to know how to show it even better. We need to let the gospel light that shines inside of us shine and be so clear and evident in the way that we are devoted to one another in brotherly love. And Jesus said, by this, the world's going to know that you're mine, that you have love for one another. And you're like, great, Jason, that, that sounds good, but... If I'm to obey this command, if if this is supposed to be me, I'm supposed to show brotherly love to one another and show honor to others above myself, what is this going to look like in our life? Well, it's great because over the next several verses, Paul gives us an answer about what this looks like. 
Now, here's where it gets a little tricky, especially maybe for some of you teens who aren't used to reading Paul the way I'm going to preach Paul. See, if you're a type A personality like me, you would like someone to pose a question and then give you three sequential bullet points on how to answer topic A. Paul doesn't do that. Paul's like, well, here's a couple things about the relationship in the church, one another, and then here's some stuff about people outside of the church, and then here's something else, and then now we're going to get back to the people in the church loving one another. So when I'm skipping around and skipping over stuff, just know Paul did it too, so I'm just trying to keep up with him. There is a difference, brothers and sisters, between active love and passive love. The idea here, the language Paul is using for the love that is supposed to be between one another is familial, like family. And that is very distinct from the love you have for your favorite sports team or your favorite actor or tacos. That kind of love is, is sure, it's, it's love. We use that word, we've run it through the mud and stretch it pretty thin, so sure, we can say that that's love. But you know that you can love your favorite sports team and your favorite actor without owning a jersey or even owning every single one of their movies. You can love the sports team or the actor without spending hours and hours in line for an autograph. You see, that kind of love is passive love. It requires nothing of you. It's nothing more than an unrequited feeling. It's an emotional response to something that sends dopamine to your brain. You can sit there and do nothing and say you love it, and nobody can argue against that. Now, on the other hand, we have familial love, and this type of love is a love that's experienced between mothers and fathers with their children. It's also experienced between husbands and wives, and this kind of love is a reciprocal feeling, and Paul tells us that there is an expectation with this kind of love. You don't just get to say, I love you, sweetie, and then do nothing for them. It's a job. It's an investment. It's a little bit of work, to be honest. And Paul says that these deep affections that we have for one another, because we're Christians, so because we are Christians, we are going to have this. There's no choice here. You don't get to say, well, that one's not for me. That we are to love one another above ourselves and show honor above ourselves. We are also going to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice, depending on the translation you're reading it in. But we know this because this is our experience in our own homes. You would gladly take a bullet for anyone in your home. Chances are you'd probably take a bullet for someone in this room, and that's great. But would you do that for every person in this room? You know, in 1987, there was a Northwest Airlines flight leaving Detroit that crashed shortly after taking off. And at the time, it was the second deadliest aviation accident in the U.S., the second deadliest, but it was the absolute deadliest aviation accident with a sole survivor. In total, 155 people died, including two on the ground. The only one to survive was little four-year-old Cecilia. And when, when the paramedics and the first responders get on the scene, they don't believe she was actually a passenger on the plane. They think maybe she was a passenger in one of the cars where the plane had crashed on the road. But when they checked the flight register, there was her name, Cecilia. And she survived because even as the plane was falling, her mom took the seatbelt off. Her mom put her body on the line and wrapped her baby girl in her arms and said, I'm never letting go. And neither death 
or the flames or the fall would separate the child from her mother's love. Would you do that for the person sitting in front of you? I know, yeah, Jason, that's a little bit extreme. I get that. But what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that the family love you would have, husband to wife or parent to child, you're supposed to have, I'm supposed to have for one another. This brotherly love compels us to jump into action even when it's not convenient, no matter the cost. So instead of sitting around waiting for something else to happen in that person's life who's struggling, I'm supposed to, you're supposed to jump in and help them out. It's an active, sacrificial love with humility and love abounding. Think about the relationship between David and Jonathan. There was a lot of political turmoil there, a lot of things that could have caused that relationship to break down. But they had love for one another that really confounds us even to this day. Think about Jesus, the Son of God, second person in the Trinity, stepping off the throne in heaven and breaking into our humanity so that he could take our place on the cross. That's an act of love. He didn't just sit up there and like hope something would work out for us. Think about it. As a parent, that's not how you act with your kids. You see that one of your kids is struggling no matter the age, and you don't just sit there and be like, well, hope they figure it out. No. When your kid's in need, and I'm talking about real need here, you drop everything. And no matter the cost or the time of day or the inconvenience, you go run to help. Because that's what you do. You're a parent. You love them. And I hope that we have brothers and sisters in this room as well, whether blood-related or spiritually-related, that would do the same thing. It's going to take intentionality to overcome the complacency that so many of us have grown accustomed to. Devotion means that you're actively committed despite the circumstance, and even when the cost to you is high. When you love that other person, just like as if you were in a marriage or if they were your child, you know that there are going to be days when maybe they're not so lovable. But that doesn't stop you from loving them. That doesn't stop you from jumping in to help. And there are some ways that this plays out. But before we talk about that, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you accidentally devoted yourself to something? When was the last time you accidentally honored someone more than yourself? When was the last time you were sitting in your own backyard with only the people that live in your house and you accidentally rejoiced with those who were rejoicing or wept with those who were weeping outside of your house? Those things don't just happen. Those things can't just appear out of thin air. You have to be in one another's lives to be able to do this. This is an act of love that requires participation. So Paul is essentially saying that we're to outdo one another in love. And this is where we're going to start celebrating each other's victories in life. We're going to give them preferential treatment. Instead of insisting on our own way, we're going to take a step back and be like, no, I want you to go ahead. I would like you to make the last call. We're going to brag on our brothers and sisters a little bit in the way that God has gifted them and the way God has used them. But this doesn't happen if we don't talk to anybody. It doesn't happen if as soon as the service is over, we make a beeline for the door. Now, on the other hand, of this authentic, genuine, active love for one another, we have either a passive love or a fake, 
false, counterfeit love, the kind of love that sees the success in your life. They see about your promotion, your side hustle. They see how God is blessing you, and now you get to teach a Sunday school class. And instead of actually rejoicing with you, they'll they'll put on a smile. They'll even like your status on Facebook, but on the inside of their heart, they despise you, and they're angry at God because they want what you have. And brothers and sisters, that is not real love. Really, that starts to breed the seeds of discontentment. But, but we can't let that be true in our church. Instead, what could this look like? How can we love one another with brotherly love? How can we show honor to others? How can we help celebrate their wins in life? Well, there's a sign-up sheet out here for several big events going on. We've got mamas with babies, and we've got ladies who are about to tie the knot. Let's celebrate the awesome things in their life. There might be other things going on that we don't have a sign-up sheet for, but you know it's happening. Maybe you send a card or a gift, or maybe your comfort zone is just to give them a high five. That works too. But celebrate with them. Show them honor. Lift them up in prayer. And really, this plays right into verse 15. Paul says to rejoice with those who rejoice, and that's kind of what we're talking about here. But, but that's the first part, right? Rejoicing with those who rejoice. But what about the second part of verse 15? What does that say? Weep with those who weep or mourn with those who mourn. Now, most of us in this room are all too eager to share the promotion, the good grades of our kids, the new toy we have in the backyard or sitting in the driveway or the trip we're about to take or the renovations we're doing. We're all too easy and all too eager to share those awesome things in life. But Typically, we don't let you see the failures, the heartbreak, tears, the frustration. Paul says that if you're going to weep with those who weep, you're going to have a love for one another that involves shared experiences because how else are you going to get the inside scoop? How else are you going to know what others are struggling with? They're not going to broadcast it for everyone, so how are you going to know? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. And as you begin to see one another in this room, the way God intends for you to see them as family, literal family, people that would take a bullet for you and even harder, they would live for you. They would live so that they can help you. They would live so that they can serve with you. They would live and desire to follow God's call on their life to be a blessing to you and your family. We're gonna need to let our guard down. We're going to have to open up. We're going to have to get uncomfortable. We're going to have to be awkward and just going to have to be okay with it. We're going to have to let others know what we're struggling with. And it might not even be a sin issue. It could just be like yesterday. My garage door is all janky right now. I have no clue what's going on. How in the world are you going to pray to help me if you don't know what's going on in my life? If all I post is the good stuff, how are you going to pray for me about the bad stuff? Exactly. You can't. We have to know what's going on. We have to be the type of person who is open and honest enough with someone. Listen, I'm not saying you have to do this with all 300 people that show up on a random Sunday here, but find like two or three. Let's start small. Let's find two or three people that we can just rip it open and let them know this is who I am, this is what I'm struggling with, and I need you to pray for me. Because there's going to be a time when that relationship is going to grow so strong that you're going to be the person someone else comes to when they get the worst phone call of their life. 
think about it for a minute. You're all thinking everything's fine. You've got dinner plans. You've got lunch plans. You know what's going to go on at work tomorrow. But we all have to realize that at any given moment, we are one phone call from our life being flipped, turned upside down. One phone call away is all it takes. And everything you thought you had going is completely gone. It does not matter anymore. Yeah, you're going to cry out to God, but who's going to help wrap their arms around you? Who's going to shoulder that burden with you? Who's going to be there when you're walking through the dark night of the soul? There better be someone in this room. You have to let somebody else know what's going on or else we cannot help you. So as we keep moving along, we realize that God requires his children to love one another with a genuine love, brotherly love, and it has to be active, but it also has to be sacrificial. You see that in verse 13. Verse 13, Paul gives us two more commands. Man, this guy just won't stop. He's like, first you're going to let your love be genuine. Then it's going to be this kind of love, and then he's going to keep on hammering us. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Well, this should be right up our alley because typically we don't like trying to decipher what Scripture means. It's like we can maybe hold it up through a different lens, or if I take a different look at it, maybe I can figure out what he's trying to tell me. Now, he's pretty point blank right here. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Pursue hospitality. Very cut and dry here. We cannot miss this. What kind of needs did the saints have in Paul's day? The three basic needs we've had since the beginning of time. Food, well, I shouldn't say since the beginning of time, how about since the fall? Because we didn't have needs in the garden. God was perfect. Everything was good for us. So since the fall, food, clothing, and shelter. Sounds familiar, right, guys? That's the same stuff we need today. How do you get those things? Money. So Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints. Now, this isn't just a call for you to dip into savings if you have some left over to help out with somebody in need. This is also a command for regular folks like maybe you, definitely me, who is maybe going to say no to Starbucks every week so that I have a little bit more to give to those in need. Maybe it means not buying an extra gun or a new cricket machine or whatever is on your wish list, and maybe saying no a little bit more frequently to creature comforts and hobbies so that you are freed up to be generous, to contribute to the needs of the saints. Sacrificing creature comforts isn't just something that the wealthy do. You're not going to find that anywhere in Romans or anywhere else in the Bible. This is something we do as Christians, regardless of what's in the bank. But you know, the word contribute here, it means so much more than just giving money. And I like the way one commenter put it. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains this to us. Paul is saying that you do not merely distribute to the necessities of the saints, but that you enter into fellowship with them. You become partners with them. You share with them. In other words, you must feel that their burden is your burden. You must feel that pain yourself, that pinch yourself. You have entered into a kind of partnership with them in their predicament. Jesus said the poor will always be with us. And if you add to that, you compound that situation, the fact that there are poor always going to be here, everyday troubles and trials that we deal with, flat tire, messed up garage door, an unexpected health cost, gas prices, you name it. It's very easy to see that we are in no shortage of people that need to be blessed by us. 
through our financial contributions. Whether it's five bucks to spot someone for gas, I guess that's like 20 years ago, I'm dating myself. Five bucks used to get you somewhere. Now it's like it might get you to the other side of the parking lot. Jesus said we will always have the poor with us. You know, in in the book of Acts, we read about that church then as it's beginning and flourishing. The church, just like us, they sold all of their possessions and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Acts 2.45. They had everything in common and shared their personal possessions because they had a better possession and an abiding one. I'm not at all telling you to go sell all of your stuff so that somebody can pay to fill up their gas tank, but I am saying that we shouldn't be so stingy. And I'm not even saying that this church is stingy, but it probably crosses your mind a time or two. Should I give? And our answer should just always be, yeah. Yeah, I can do that. I can certainly help out. Because... Again, we're thinking about how this is evidence. This is how we work out and live out that brotherly love that we're supposed to have for one another. That familial love, like I said earlier. If you see a friend, a dear friend in need, or you see a child of yours in need, you don't just hope it works out for them. You jump into action. You've got active love compelling you to jump in, and you're going to sacrifice. Now, quickly, again, we're going to keep on beating the same drum. We cannot help you financially or practically, if we don't know what's going on in your life, if you don't tell somebody. So, so maybe what we all need to do right now is just real quick, we're not even going to raise hands, ask God to forgive you for the pride that keeps you from sharing your needs with one another. That one hurt, didn't it? It's been hurting me all week. We are going to have to ask God to forgive us of our pride that keeps us from sharing our needs with one another. We can't continue to operate in silence and rob so many one another's in this room of being a blessing to us and honoring God and in the process making the world scratch their head and go, wait, that doesn't make sense. Didn't you guys want to go do that? Like you wanted to to do this fixing up stuff around the house? Well, yeah, but like we got some missionaries over there that can't feed their kids because like the people hate Christianity, so they're burning their houses down. Oh, you, you guys like you help people in India? Yeah, yeah, we do. We're not bragging. We're just saying, like, that's why that didn't get done around the house, because we got people to feed. Those were our brothers and sisters over there. And it doesn't have to be that extreme either, but I think you get the point, so we're going to keep on moving on. Another mark of this kind of love, this active sacrificial love, is hospitality. The ESV says, seek to show, but it's also accurate to say, pursue hospitality. Look for ways to be hospitable to others. Now, see, in Paul's day, they didn't have a hotel or a motel or a Holiday Inn. What they did have was weary travelers journeying somewhere. And once they arrived, they didn't have enough money on a regular basis, did not have enough money to get the lodging that was available. And so they were forced to rely upon the hospitality of strangers. That'd be kind of like booking an Airbnb today on the very same day, just moments before you need to put your head down somewhere and trying to get something. Oh, and by the way, The host isn't leaving. You're going to be there with the family. They're going to cook for you. They're going to clean up after you, and they're going to get to know you. And I just lost all of my introverts in the room. Like, peace out. Nope, can't do it. I am, nope, nope. I will sleep next to the camels in the barn. Not doing it, Jason. Not doing it. But listen, here's the problem in 2022. We have Holiday Inn. We don't even know what hospitality is. We have to ask, what is hospitality, and how in the world am I supposed to show this in my life? 
I like how one author put it. He said this about hospitality. Hospitality is a weapon for the gospel. And it looks like Christians choosing to engage rather than unplug, open rather than close, and initiate rather rather than sit idly by. We are to actively seek ways in which we can build relationships with people that we don't know and build relationships with people you only kind of know. Like you wave at each other in the hallway. You said, good morning, brother. Good morning, sister. I'm glad you had a good week. But you don't know them. Just because they're a familiar face doesn't mean you know them. You need and I need, we need to be getting to know one another. We need to get to know people that are different than us. And as we seek to honor God and obey his word, we're going to build relationships that are strong enough to bear the weight of truth. How do you get started? Don't you love it when a preacher comes up and says, hey, this is what you got to do. And then it's not clear how you actually do that thing. How do you get started? Paul's really good about giving us answers. But this is one that you kind of get by reading between the lines. Here's what I've come up with after praying about this for the past several weeks. When we are done, leave your phone in your pocket. Leave your phone in your purse. Unless your bladder's about to burst, don't make a beeline to get out of this room. Just chill for a minute. Daniel has been telling us and preaching to us for years that if only, if only we could show up 10, 15 minutes early, Maybe if we could only stay 10 to 15 minutes after the service, if we could just show up on Wednesday, maybe Sunday school is where you guys need to be, that we would have more face time. We would naturally grow relationships with one another, and we would be able to live this out. And that's going to cost you 10 to 15 minutes. It's going to cost you a little bit of awkwardness, right? Because I've seen your face, but I forgot your name. We just need name tags. Listen, this is a church that preaches the gospel, and what's more gospel than forgiveness? So listen, if you don't know my name or someone else's name, it's okay. I probably don't know yours either. We are going to fix this. Let's get to know each other. So it's going to cost you a few minutes here or there. You're going to have to endure some initial awkwardness, but I promise you're going to survive. This is what it means to live a life of hospitality, to pursue it. And we know that as we obey this command, chapter 12, verse 10, our love is going to be active and sacrificial. Paul also tells us that our love will be humble. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Christians ought to be marked by unity and humility. And Paul knew this. Paul believed this. Paul preached this. And in Rome, the folks he's writing to, he knows their, their demographics, their geopolitical stuff going on. You've got Jews and Gentiles in this church, folks who have historic bad blood running for centuries. And he knows that the danger to the church's unity and its witness to the surrounding community lie just beneath the surface. It wasn't volatile. But man, it's not going to take much for things to erupt and explode because you've heard the expression, if you give Satan an inch, he will take a mile. So Paul, um, actually, when he was writing to the Ephesians, he said that Jesus had broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. But people are idiots. 
And if we can fight and prove somebody wrong, chances are we're going to. Like Dan said earlier, as our prayer of confession, Paul writes, and we could confess the same is true for us. I don't want to sin, but I sin anyway. And the things I do want to do, I just never get around to doing it. Paul knows that harmony and unity, this humble love, where we're not insisting on our own way, is a way to show the world that we are Jesus' disciples. Now, this doesn't mean harmony uh, like homogenous. It doesn't mean we're all a bunch of the same people. It doesn't mean we all agree on every single point of theology. It doesn't mean we all have the same hobbies or root for the same team. It doesn't even mean that we have a ton in common. But what it does mean is that the very most important thing we have in common, that we are children of the living God, far surpasses every other thing you do not have in common with one another. That is what gives us unity, and that right there is what fuels our humility, where we can say to another brother or sister that we don't have a lot in common with, let's do something you'd like. What would you like to eat? As we build those relationships, we're just not going to insist on our own way. We're not going to be rolling up into church demanding all of our preferences. You know, sometimes we think, Sometimes we think way more than we should about ourselves. And anytime we think more highly of ourselves, it always leads to ruin. Sometimes we have the mindset, even though we might never vocalize it, we've got the mindset that, you know, a lot of the problems in the church could be fixed if only somebody would ask me. You know, the music here could be so much better if they played the stuff I listened to on the way home. Get a little hip-hop in there. You know, I would love to serve the church, but, you know, I just don't really see myself as the guy who... uh, Scrubs toilets. I'm a VP. Come on. I, I don't do that. That's beneath me. We just don't roll up into church insisting on our own way. So how do we combat this wickedness that resides in all of us? Again, you might never think things that are that extreme, but you already know what the Spirit's put on your heart about the things you're wanting to say sometimes in the flesh, but uh, the Spirit gets the say and says, nope, don't say that. That's not good. Well, Paul tells us that the way to overcome this is by associating with the lowly and deferring to others. You see, the bride of Christ must be characterized by a love that isn't self-serving, but is all-inclusive. We've said this before, especially in Sunday school over the past year. Look around the room, and it's almost like looking in a mirror. It is. And that's not to say good or ill of anyone in this room. Our community looks a lot like us, so that only makes sense. But if we are going to be humble in our love for one another, if we are going to be deferential, if we're going to show that kind of love, then we're going to need to show that love to people that don't necessarily look like us. So if we see that most people here look like us, then we skip to the next level. Well, we've got some people that have higher education and some with lower education and some who believe this way and maybe they voted this way because you've seen their Facebook and then other people who probably believe this way and voted that way. And maybe you've got some people who live on the right side of the tracks and the wrong side of the tracks. And we typically only run in circles that we're comfortable with, which is people who think and believe and live and make as much and vote like we do. And I hate to break it to you. If you haven't heard this before, not everyone in this room voted the way you did. Not everyone in the room has your same stance on gun control. 
this is a group of sinners. We're going to have differences, but we are going to be humble about those differences and pursue relationships regardless. Instead of looking to build relationships in the church that can actually return on the investment for you through maybe a job position that might come up. Or maybe, hey, they've got a truck, so like I always want to be friends with a truck because I don't have one, and when it comes time to move, that's my guy. Maybe don't be looking for a friendship that can only benefit you. Maybe reach out to someone that has nothing to offer you. They are so remarkably different from you in the way they live their life. Yeah, they're still Christians, but you guys just don't, you wouldn't naturally mesh together. They're not ever going to be able to offer you a job or help you do your taxes or help you move maybe, but maybe those are the people that you need to be making friendships with. If you think about it, what happens to the people who are like no one else? So if we had 100 people in here, it's probably safe to say that 90% of us can find someone like us, but what about the 10% that society generally outcasts, marginalizes? Again, what if we had someone here, a person of color? Someone with far less education than you might have hoped for an adult. Someone who, if you were to look at the vehicle they rode up in, I mean, you're probably not looking to go for a car ride with them. If we never reach out to the outcasts or the ones that the world disregards, what does that say about our love for God? What does that say about God's love for sinners? You see, the love of Christ that shines in you is most clearly seen when you sit next to that socially awkward person. And I just saw somebody wink and nod at someone. It's okay. It's okay. The love of Christ that shines in you is most clearly seen when you invite a family over that doesn't have many connections. Maybe they're new to the church. Maybe they've been here six years. And they've never been invited to anyone's house. Shame on us. We do this so that friendships, gospel-centered friendships, friendships that are genuine and authentic, the ones that honor God and make the world go, what? It can be harnessed. It can be grown and cultivated over a paper plate full of ribs and potato salad. Just have someone over. And maybe your thing isn't food. That's fine. Go play golf. Go grab coffee. Go watch your kids play at the park and talk to someone. Keep your phone in the car. Do something so that you can be with other people. You know, the world says, you matter if you can do something for me. But the gospel says, you matter, so let me do something for you. Kind of like Justinian von Wells. Justinian von Wells was a baron in the Netherlands in the 1600s. He unsuccessfully pleaded with the state church to bring the gospel to the world, and they, they labeled him a dreamer. His response was met with disapproval. So he fueled up his determination even more, and he went to Dutch Guinea, which is now Suriname, South America. And he renounced his title of baron, gave up his estates, and gave himself, going at his own expense, to Dutch Guinea, where he soon filled a lonely missionary grave. This is what he said. What to me is the title well-born when I am one born again in Christ? What to me is the title Lord when I desire to be a servant of Christ? What to me is it to be called your grace when I have need of God's grace? All these vanities I will do away with and everything besides I will lay at the feet of Jesus, my dearest Lord, that I may have no hindrance in serving him aright. 
Mr. Von Wells was concerned, and rightly so, for serving God rightly. And I think we are too. I think that is one of our concerns. Or else, why would we show up? Why would we read our Bible if we're not concerned for obeying him and trying to figure out how do we do this in a way that is pleasing to you, O Lord? You realize that Jesus set the perfect example, right? His love for us displayed in real life, documented throughout scriptures, covers everything we talked about today and more. His was an act of love. His was a very sacrificial love, and his was more humble than you could even put into words. By the power of the Spirit of God, the gospel frees us from apathy and indifference and being a sideline sitter where you're just observing everyone else's life and you observe the trials and you observe the toiling and you observe the frustration and the frustration and the sin and the heartbreak and the tears and you're just like, well, I'll pray for you. Only the gospel can enable a fallen human being to rightly serve God. Only the gospel can allow us to set aside our personal preferences and count others more worthy than ourselves and to seek their good. Only the gospel can enable fallen man to show humble, active, sacrificial, genuine brotherly love for one another. Now look, there's always a million reasons not to do something. It's just true. I've counted that high. There's always a million to a number. There's always a million reasons not to do something. But when your life is lived in humble submission to the Spirit, every single one of them disintegrates. You might not see it at first, right? Because when you first get saved, there's a whole lot of work the Holy Spirit's got to do on you. And if you're a recent convert, you know the struggle is real. Some of us have been saved two decades or more, and we know the Spirit's got a whole lot more work to do on us. We don't see all of them disappear immediately. But the power of the gospel allows us to remove the shackles of sin, of apathy, indifference, and things like that. Then we're freed up to show genuine love for one another by getting up off the couch and getting into someone else's life, getting out of our comfort zone, and making friends with people that we don't really know that well in this room. Jesus said, this is what we do because this is who we are. Not in, those, not in so many words. In John 13, 35, I've alluded to this already. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. Essentially, that's saying, this is what we do because this is who we are. If you're a Christian then you will love one another with brotherly love. You will be devoted to them. You will show active love, sacrificial love, and humble love to them. And by your devotion to one another and brotherly love, you will fulfill this command and you will confound the world, but you will honor God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, as the worship team comes now and as we are praying, Lord, we thank you for this day and for this word that you've given us. Lord, this is a tall order that we are to fill because this kind of love is going to get us out of our comfort zone. It's going to ask us and demand of us effort, a little bit of time, maybe a couple dollars, maybe not getting our own way all of the time. And so God, I pray that you would help us 
to follow Christ's example of this kind of brotherly love and devotion to one another so that you will be lifted up. So Lord God, please use your spirit to power us over our sin. Give us victory so that we can put this love on display, so we can honor you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.